Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host for this episode. I am Kevin Estella. I'm the director of survival training, the media guy behind a bunch of the stuff over here. And uh, I don't know, all around kind of multi-tool. You know, a lot of us over here are multi-tools and we're trying to get away from saying survival instructor or med instructor and just saying instructor. Um, today, we got an interesting guest. We got a guest that has been to Fieldcraft before. Um, we've got a guest who I've known for a while through different affiliations that, you know, it's definitely representative of a small world and uh, someone who you should be following. Uh, guys, if you've ever wanted to go hunting in Hawaii, if you've ever wanted to go to Total Archery Challenge, if you've ever put on a Kifaru backpack, if you've ever drank Black Rifle coffee, uh, you've got something in common with our guest. Guys, today in the studio, we have none other than the one and only Dana Monroe. Dana, how are you? I am great. That's fan- even better after that intro. <laughs> yeah, you know, we try to we try to build you guys up a little bit before we completely chop you down. Um, but uh, you're pretty resilient. You've worked with some interesting folks, and I think you're you're good at this. So yes, let's uh, let's talk. What are you drinking? Uh, coffee. I, I yeah, I know that. I know that. But you're you're currently working at Black Rifle. Yes, you've moved back to the area because you're originally from Utah, right? Yes. Okay. And do you have a favorite Black Rifle blend? I would probably have to say um, Freedom Fuel or Beyond Black. Beyond They're Black is what ones. I got right here. Right. Um, awesome. So let's let's just jump right into this and let's talk about who Dana Monroe is and why people should be following you and, uh, <clears throat> you know, some of the cooler stuff that you've done. So grew up in Utah. Yep. And kind of talk us through the childhood, like what it was that, what that was all about and getting into the outdoors <laughs> and all that great stuff. Well... Growing up, I was always outside. Like you, you could not get me inside. I was kind of a tomboy. I know, mm-hmm. huge shocker to most people, but I just I loved being outside. I was never interested in hunting or anything like that, but I just loved being outside and going on hikes. We, uh, a few of my sisters, we would go up to what we would call the gravel pits in my little town and go catch lizards, and <laughs> we loved lizards. Um, but just be outside as much as I could and go camping and all of that. And that eventually took you into adulthood and you eventually made your way out to Colorado. Um, but before <laughs> catching lizards and moving to Colorado, was there anything else that kind of defined that early, early life? Not, not a lot. I was very involved in sports growing up. So I, I spent a lot of my time doing that and kind of developing that. And so I didn't really have many many hobbies outside of that. Mm -hmm. Was it soccer? No, it was. So from a small town. So I played basketball, softball, uh, all four years of high school. And then I tried volleyball and track a little bit also. Out of those four, which was the most physically demanding? Volleyball. Why is that? The, The coach, she just put us through the most like very rigorous conditioning the first two weeks of the year because volleyball was at the beginning of the year. So Mm -hmm. it was after the summer, we were all not in the greatest of shape. And so the first two weeks of volleyball camp were just brutal. We were on, on top of our like three hour practice. We had to run a mile and a half every day and time it and record it and, and give her our times and all of that. And just all of the conditioning for, for those first couple, sorry, those first couple weeks, Mm -hmm. um, really made it probably the most difficult. Did you ever encounter any injuries? I, I rolled a couple ankles in basketball my Mm -hmm. senior year, but that was about it. Wow. You're lucky. Uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting, uh, with all this training, like whether you're doing high school sports, college sports, uh, you're doing like, uh, you know, just hobby or club sports or anything like that you want to take the training as close to the competition level as possible, but it seems like the closer you get to that competition level, the more likely you are to sustain an injury, you know, you go hard or, or you push it a little bit. And, you know, I think it's really important, you know, to, to learn from the injuries that a lot of people have sustained, like, okay, how can you mitigate those injuries? Uh, what should you be aware of? Like, I think for the listeners, if you're a parent and you've got a kid engaged in any sports, there should be some serious red flags that come up where it's like, I don't think that coach knows exactly what they're doing, you know, <laughs> because quite honestly, like to become a coach at the high school level, you're, you're supposed to take like a, you know, a couple of first aid courses and, you know, go through some like the safety classes in terms of like how not to be one-on-one with a, a student athlete at any time, like just 
cover your ass type of stuff. But many times there are just concerned parents that become coaches and they don't know how to properly teach a student or teach a student athlete how to do a, a particular drill or exercise or anything like that. And then the kid gets injured, Yes, you know? And I think that's something that as a parent, if you're out there, you need to really ask your, your kids coaches, like, do you know what you're doing? Like, what's your background? Like try not to be a, a total jerk when you ask them, but it feel definitely inquire because you'd be amazed at how many folks are out there telling kids to do, uh, I don't know what your least favorite punishment was or hazing or whatever you want to call it. Training, um, lame dogs were my least favorite, you know, where you are on all fours, except you pick up one leg, uh, and you've got to move. Those are my least oh my favorite. Gosh. Yeah. Those are fun. Um, that running, sounds terrible. Yeah. Running, <laughs> running Hills, uh, Hills as a punishment. That was always a good time. Uh, running Hills with weight or holding like a, like a, you know, we would have to put someone on our back and run up the hill with them. Yeah. And it's like, Hmm, that's not going to lead to <laughs> rolled ankles or, or knee injuries or anything. So, uh, yeah, yeah I think people can learn from that, but sports, Yep. Moved to Colorado. And what prompted the move? Uh, so I, I had been, honestly, I just kind of started following some people on social media that were into bow hunting. And at first I was like, that's stupid. That's who mm -hmm. wants to do that. And then I just saw it more and more and was a little bit more intrigued and then went to a, an outdoor show, the Western Hunt Expo here in Salt Lake. And I shot a bow for the first time. And as soon as I released that arrow, I was hooked. So I didn't have anybody getting me into it. I just tried to figure out kind of my, my way into it. And mm -hmm. so I went and I bought a little starter bow and started shooting and taught myself how to shoot. And now then I kind of ended up, ended up going back to that Western hunt expo and I met Aaron and Frank and just stayed in contact with them. And one day I was talking to, I think it was Frank and he was like, come out here, like move out here and work at Kafaru. We need somebody. And I'm like, wait, like, like, are you serious about this right now? I asked him like three different times if he was serious. And I'm like, like, I will do that if you are mm -hmm. serious. And a couple of weeks later I was out there. That starter bow. Did you start off with a compound? Yes. Yep. It was a compound. And for those listening, what are your stats with your compound? Like your draw length, your, like tell us, what, <laughs> let, let us geek out a little bit about the gear that you're carrying. Yeah. Well now it's a little bit different. Um, so my draw weight is 60 pounds, draw length, 27 and a half inches, uh, arrow weights right around 400 grains right now. And so pretty, pretty decent setup. Not, I guess not a lot of females are at this place, but you know, there are more that can pull more weight than me, but. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and do you shoot pretty much daily? Yes. I mean, I, I try. <laughs> it's been, it's been a busy couple weeks with moving back to Utah, um, a number of other things and travel, all sorts of that stuff. So I, I haven't shot my bow since I left Colorado. So you're a little rusty. Yeah, right. sadly. Um, so you move out to Colorado you join the ranks of Kafaru. And if you guys don't know Kafaru, they're, they're good friends of ours. I'm, I'm wearing a Kafaru sweatshirt right now. Um, I started I almost using, wore the same one today. Really? We would have been total nerds. <laughs> I should have worn I it. I know, right? Um, so if you guys don't know Kafaru, probably the best backpack maker in the country. I do not use any other backpack other than Kafaru. I've been using their stuff since 2006, 2007. If this sounds like an advertisement. It's not. Um, I just seriously swear to God, I, I love their stuff. And the company I visited a bunch of times with the old rendezvous and then, you know, going out there uh, recently and, and meeting up with Aaron and Frank and doing and camping trips out there. Um, I love everyone over there. Big shout out to Angie. Yes. I know Angie would be very upset if she knew that Dana and I were in this podcast studio together and not talking about her. Such a sweetheart. If you guys ever need something from Kafaru, call up Kafaru and ask her Angie, say Kevin from Fieldcraft sent you, <laughs> she'll take care of you. Um, so you start working at, at Kafaru, mm -hmm. backpack maker, and I love the company culture there. Yes. Number one, I like the fact that it's a small building. You do everything in house except for some of the sewing, which I know you you give like Rubbermaid bins to people and they do it off off site and come back with things, right? Yep. Like, yeah. And it's it's changed a little bit mm -hmm. through you know throughout growing the company, but still very you know very hands on people. People here in America are still sewing everything mm -hmm. on that pack. And you were there in the days when Patrick Smith owned it. And mm -hmm. you were there through the transition to Aaron and Chad. Yes. That's awesome. Um, and if you guys don't know the history of, of Kafaru, it was started by Patrick Smith, the guy that ran Mountain Smith. 
and then he started Kafaro. So like more hunting and, and military tactical packs um, and a little bit of a culture change there when, when that switched over and yep. the company has blown up yeah. since then. Um, now <laughs> you mentioned Aaron and Frank, <laughs> did you pick up any of their one liners over the years? Like, do you have any favorite like, oh, sayings? Oh man, what's the one of Aaron's? Aaron has so many, like I've never met somebody just so like quick on his feet with the most out there sayings, like pick and fly shit out of chili. That's, that's the one that goes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or, uh, or fucked up like a football bat. Yeah. Yep. There's that one. And then, uh, you know, if it were, <laughs> what, what's this? Other one? <laughs> I don't even want to say this other one, but I'll say it. What the hell? Aaron Snyder would say, uh, if it's raining pussy, he'd get hit in the head with a dick. Yes. Um, yeah, there, there's all sorts of good stuff. Um, Aaron's one of those guys who salted the earth. I mean, I, I've stayed at his house. I've, I've hung out with his dogs. I love those dogs. Um, just such a good dude. And that company, when you were there, I remember that's how we first met. Yep. When I was at one of the rendezvous, like this was like probably 2017, 2018. Yeah. Yeah. It was, er, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Early on. And you were working the front desk, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so tell us about that experience. Like, what did you learn working the front desk, meeting the customers, learning the industry? Like, like what were some of the big takeaways from working at Kafaru? Well, I mean, being a female is, is a little bit different in such a male dominant industry and, and talking with Aaron before I started, he's like, look, there's going to be some people that come in that just will not listen to you simply because you're a female. So I, you know, I experienced a lot of that mm -hmm. and people who, even though I, cause I was the customer service manager. So I was there in the showroom. I was kind of the first point of contact with sizing people and trying and, you know, trying out the different packs, seeing which pack worked best for them. And, um, a lot of people, you know, I was, I was very knowledgeable in, in what would be the best pack for them, what would be the best setup, but they didn't necessarily listen to me simply because I was a girl. And so I would, you know, I tell them, Hey, you need this and this and this and this. And they're like, Oh, well, I'd like to talk to Aaron, see what he thinks. Aaron would come in and tell him exactly what I said. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yes. So it, it taught me a lot about, you know, just experiencing mm -hmm. that, that and then um really just just talking with people interacting with people trying to figure out what they wanted what they needed um sometimes they would come in with kind of like a preconceived notion that this is what they needed and i would try and sway them to what what was a better fit they wouldn't necessarily do that but just just a lot and you talk about being a multi-tool here at fieldcraft that's that's definitely what I was and, and especially what I grew to be the longer I was with Kafaru. It, it's funny because you mentioned something that comes up all the time and it's, it's when people want to buy gear, they want to buy the gear that's flashy or they want to buy the gear that they think they need because they saw someone else using something yeah. and it looked good on them or it worked well for them. But exactly what you mentioned where you're like, Hey, this is a better fit for you. They don't want to believe the industry expert or the subject matter expert. Yeah. They want to believe their feelings, right? <laughs> like, Oh, I want the one that's all black because it's gotta be cooler. Like, you right. know, really, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're basing your gear selection on emotion instead of logic. That's going right. to, that's going to kill you. Right. And a lot of the time somebody would come in and they're like, they want this whole setup that was going to run them probably close to $1,500. And I'm like, for, for the application that you're using this for, mm -hmm. I think this would be a better route and you're saving six, $700. And they're like, well, that's weird. Like a company here, I'm trying to spend more money mm -hmm. and you're trying to, to take me in a different direction where I'm not spending as much money. But, but because we, we weren't there to try and just have people spend the most money, you know, we wanted them to to be able to get something that was applicable to what they were doing. And it's interesting that company has such brand loyalty, you know, like <laughs> you guys can go to a big box store, you can go to, you know, a sporting goods store and get a run of the mill backpack and it might work for you, but good luck going through customer service with some of these big companies. Right. Here is a small American company and people are like, yeah, but it's more expensive. I'm like, hold on, <laughs> you know, number one, it's made all in America. That's what Barry, the Barry yeah. compliant and Barry amendment is all about, right? All yep. American source parts. Yep. Um, and that's the biggest thing is everything yeah. that goes into the pack is also American made. So it's not just made here. 
everything, like the components, the thread, the binding, the buckles, everything is higher quality USA made. Yeah. And people will say, but I can get this cheaper. It's like, yeah. And you're supporting some communist overseas. Good job. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And yep. you're still rocking that American flag, you know, t-shirt. <laughs> Good job. Um, so yeah, the, the company is awesome because it's small. Uh, it, it feels like family when you're there, Yeah, you know, when you're talking about like big red, you know, Eric Bender, yeah. you know, like he's funny. Um, <laughs> You know, Angie's another one, Frank the Tank. Uh, I mean, there there's so many cool characters that are over at that company. And when you go there, it's almost like from one visit to the next, uh, because right now you've got that that front showroom, but mm-hmm. how it, it's not difficult to get a tour, right? Like if you're oh, like, no. yeah, yeah, you can actually go there. And and guys, here's the thing: like, I, I've been a gear junkie my my whole life, but I love being able to go to a company like that, meeting the sewer. You know, and then like going up and seeing like the repair section, which by the way, there's not a lot of repairs, um, cause the, the packs are made well. And, and just knowing that this is the company, right? Like it really does feel like family there. So how hard was it to leave that family? It was very, very difficult. I, I really, really struggled with that thought. And Aaron kind of approached me about this whole black rifle thing. And I like it completely out of left field. I was I was like, I can't, I, I, my identity was so wrapped up in being the Kafaru girl yeah. that, cause I'd been that for so long and everybody, oh, you're the Kafaru girl. You're the Kafaru girl. And it, it was very hard. But I think once I kind of came to terms with that, I was, I was very excited on what the next step could, could do for me. Yeah. Cause Kafaru sent you to the total archery challenge. And I know that we mentioned that before. Yeah. Um, and you had a lot of cool opportunities to go on hunts and things like that. So let's before we talk about the current endeavor with Black Rifle, let's talk about some of the the cool experiences that you had through Kafaro. Like Total Archery Challenge, we set up there. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually saw you at this one that was over here in Park City. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that in case people that are listening who are new hunters or maybe they're archers or they're someone who's been interested in this game for a long time, but they didn't know what it's all about. When you hear the word challenge, you think like maybe like marathon or you think like triathlon or some some type of beat you down atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. But what is total archery challenge? Total archery challenge is it's probably one of the best ways you can get practice for just those ridiculous situations when it comes to hunting. Like you can go to a range and you can shoot a hundred arrows every day, but if you don't practice in odd conditions, you know, like different weather types, different mm-hmm. angles, different, um, like your footing, not, not perfect. You're, you're not going to be game time ready. And out in Colorado, I was very lucky where I was. There were a lot of, uh, outdoor 3d ranges where I could go and practice a lot of those more difficult shots. But for most people, they don't have access to, you know, those 3d ranges and the, the steep shots, the, you know, 40, 50 degree angle downward shots at at 70 yards. And so what tack is you sign up for your knock time, whatever you ride up the top of a mountain on a ski lift with your bow and you shoot a 3d course down. So you've got, and it, it, they're, the shots are not anything I would ever shoot in a hunting situation. Never, ever. But what they do is they, they help determine your weaknesses when it comes to archery, whether it's unsure footing, like if you can't shoot without your feet on a perfect, perfectly flat surface Mm -hmm. or, um, angles upwards, downwards. A lot of people I'm, I'm great at shooting downward angles, but I struggle with the upward angles a little bit. And, you know, you run into wind, you run into, um, upward drafts through like a little basin that you're shooting through. Um, it brings all of those elements that you get in a real hunting situation into practice. So who cleans up the missed arrows, right? Because <laughs> I, every, it seems like when you talk to people at total RG challenge, it's like, Hey, you have a good day. And most people will be like, I only lost three today. Yeah. I only lost like one today. Like yeah. who retrieves those? Because they must make a fortune. <laughs> the, the workers at Tactu, they, I think every day they go kind of try and clean the course as people are coming down and then they do a big cleanup yeah, after the, the a- whole event. Cause the average arrow is what, how much do you think that that would cost with like a field point? 
Arrows can get expensive. Yeah, they can. <laughs> and, and it's funny because everyone starts looking alike at Total Archery Challenge. Like everyone's yeah. got the bino harness. Everyone's got like a hip quiver. You know, yep. Kafaro's got an awesome hip quiver. Um, and everyone starts looking alike. But like, it's definitely a, let me show you the cool stuff I have on my bow type yeah. of environment. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, get, it gets pricey if you start missing. So guys, <laughs> uh, that's, I guess, the only... Uh, thing that might dissuade you from going to something like that is you might lose an arrow or two because it's not going to be an easy course like Dana's talking right. about. Um, Most people shoot like they'll have because uh, I spend a lot of time at the archery shop back in Denver. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would come in and get like a cheaper arrow set up specifically for the tack events because they didn't want to to ruin their high dollar arrows. And And it's not just the the archery course. I mean, there are vendors and then yeah who did we have at park city this year? We had a, uh, there was some film festival that was showing films every night. Like it was a party environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, they do a really good job of putting on a whole event for the attendees. So it's not just you come shoot the course and, and leave, you have, you know, all these different companies that are within the space displaying their gear and some where you can purchase the gear. A lot is just exposure to, you know, to the people in the hunting industry and who are out there in the field. And then they, at, at certain events, they have a lot of those like mm-hmm. after parties and film nights, the park city one has a big RMEF party. Mm-hmm. That they, was the one. they usually have yeah. like a, a country singer come out and, and put on a concert and it's, it's a really good time. Yeah. Josh Smith, uh, who is the guy behind uh, Montana knife company, he did a blacksmithing demonstration. And it was awesome because people were just watching this guy pound on an anvil in the middle of this crowd. And the coolest thing, Josh is a really, really good dude. Uh, By the way, youngest knife maker ever to earn his uh, uh, journeyman smith and master smith through the American Bladesmith Society. Uh, He gave this kid who was staring there in awe. Kid was probably like six years old. He gave him uh, a finished non-sharpened, like unsharpened knife. And this kid lit up like such an awesome experience environment. Uh, and you guys should definitely, definitely check it out. Um, and then with your time in Colorado, you went on a few hunts and I alluded to this before you went to Hawaii. Yes. Now that has been a dream hunt of mine for a long time, (laughs) but I will admit like I'm more of a rifle hunter than I am a bow hunter. Uh, what is it like hunting in Hawaii? Oh my gosh. It's, it's magical. Like that's the only way I can describe it. It's incredible. Well, you're gonna have to do a little bit better than that because you know, <laughs> people are listening. They want to know like, Hey, what is it like hunting in Hawaii? Yeah. So like number one, you think Hawaii, you think tropical beaches, you think, you know, maybe a little bit of rainforest are the deer the same? No, the ve- the deer they have there. So they're the axis deer that they have mm-hmm. out there. Very quick, very jumpy deer. And I mean, where, where I hunt and where I killed my axis deer this year, or last year, um, a couple hundred yards from the ocean in, in the photo, the ocean is literally in the backdrop. So Mm -hmm. it is, it's very tropical. And I think that's the biggest thing that I like about it is it's warm. I don't have to pack a whole bunch of layers. I don't have to freeze in the morning when I get up and, and all of that. And there's no snakes. So I don't have to worry about crawling through the dirt, crawling through the weeds and coming Mm -hmm. up on a snake. So I like, every, all of the conditions out there are just perfect. It's, it's ridiculously hot. And the first year I went, I got sunburned very, very badly and probably had like sun poisoning. Like my feet were swelled up from being sunburned so bad. And, and so that's something you definitely have to take into account because you're in Hawaii and the sun is just a lot closer there, but it's, it's, it's a lot more difficult than I think a lot of people would, would picture it. With, with the terrain, they've got a lot of that lava rock and they have mm-hmm. the vines and the grasses that grow up over that lava rock. And the thing with rocks out here is like, you know, when they fall, they, they kind of lock into each other and they, they're, they're not, they settle. Yeah. They settle. Lava rock does not do that. So you can step on it and you can just turn a rock over and turn your ankle they they have like lava shoots so you could even fall into a lava shoot like there there are a lot of of things you have to kind of keep an eye on out there and it's it's the most difficult terrain i've ever hunted and i mean i haven't hunted a lot but it's it's way more difficult than the high country of colorado mm-hmm. now the access deer out there are they as invasive as they are say in like texas they're more invasive so really? there there are the the population of deer 
is way higher than the population of people. Like there are so many deer. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I know out in Hawaii, like another dream hunt, I would love to do a hog hunt out mm-hmm. in Hawaii because it's wild. I mean, these hogs aren't, it's not like here in the U S where you might find them in an open field. Or if you do like a canned hunt where they're inside of a fenced in area or, or fed, these hogs are just living in the mountains in the jungle and they can run out at you at any time. Yeah. And you're dealing with a, a creature that is highly, highly intelligent. Like I've wanted to do that hunt for the longest time. So if there's anyone listening, that's got a hookup, let me know. Um, but now with that hunt, like there's issues that I'm curious about, like game butchering, it's hot. How does that work? Like, how do you avoid meat spoiling out there? Like, do they have a solution? So we, you know, we field dress it very quickly and I've got a friend out there that I go hunting with that he lives pretty close Mm -hmm. and we always pack a cooler. So we dress the animal take it back home and try and throw it in a freezer because we're usually getting on a plane Mm -hmm. very soon. So we try and get it cooled and frozen as soon as possible. But as long as you take care of it quickly, you don't really have to worry about it. And is it roughly, I mean, about the size of an axis deer here or are they relatively small because of the the environment? I'm not sure size wise. Um, I would assume the ones that are here may be a little bit bigger just because Mm -hmm. they're fed to be bigger. Um, they're all, you know, free range out there and who knows what you get. And depending on the year, like the rainfall and the vegetation and all Mm -hmm. of that kind of depends on the size of them. Damn that, that, like I said, that's been a dream of mine for a long time. I love Hawaii. Uh, we've got some courses that we do in Hawaii. Um, I missed out on the chance to go there this year just because we had a a lower enrollment for one of the classes. So Austin kind of did the survival and the med class. Otherwise I would have been there back in December. Um, yeah. So, oh, I love Hawaii. I got to get back yeah. there. I would love to get back there and say, I'm there not to sit on the beach, but to, to go hunt a pig or, or an axis deer. Yeah. But, uh, it's a lot more fun to do that and then go to the beach. I know. And what, what Island was it? So I go to Maui. Oh, I love Maui. Yeah. 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 Have you ever been over to, uh, Kauai? Nope. I've only been to Maui. Yeah. So Maui's awesome. Don't get me wrong. Maui's great. But Kauai is where they shot Jurassic Park. Okay. Right. And you feel like you're in Jurassic Park. Uh, There's chickens everywhere. Like if you have to survive anywhere in the world and live well, I would say Kauai if you can get there. But the only problem is if you guys are planning on relocating, number one, not very second amendment friendly over there. Uh, so that kind of dissuades me from traveling, but still you're dealing with really, really cool people. Islanders are awesome. Um, and then the second thing that dissuades me from going over there, it's expensive to get your stuff over there. Yes. Everyone that lives in Hawaii has to ship it or, or, or bring it one flight at a time. And if you think about it, like, could you guys pick up and leave right now? It's a great hypothetical question. (laughs) Like I'm in the process right now of moving from one place here in Utah to another. And I freaking hate moving. Um, so yeah, well, God, I would love to move to Hawaii, but I, in my soul, I couldn't because yeah. of those issues. Yeah. Well, and it's expensive, like just buying stuff there because they have to ship it in mm-hmm. on, on boats and all of that. So groceries are ridiculously expensive. Out yeah. There. Um, so now you've done the hunts, you've done total archer challenge, you've experienced Kafaru and you get drawn back to Utah. Yes. Let's talk about your affiliation now with Black Rifle, what you're doing, and just kind of like the culture behind the scenes. Because, I mean, let's face it, like a lot of people drink the coffee, but they don't know the people behind the scenes. And I've been fortunate working at Fieldcraft with our relationship there to be able to go there, meet Evan, you know, meet the folks behind the scenes and see where things get roasted, tested. Like it's a hell of a production. Yeah. So let's talk about how you got the job. Let's talk about your first day at the job and how things are similar, different to your past experience. Yeah. So it, it's all been interesting. It's, it, it's been very, very interesting. By saying interesting, <laughs> by the way, that sounds like, Oh, I've got this person I want you to meet. Oh, you'd love them. They're, they're really, really nice. And you know, they're ugly. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, if I could sum it up, working at black rifle is, is just chaos yeah. all the time, but, but it's fun and it's, great things come out of that. And it's, I mean, a company that grows as quickly as Black Rifle. When I started like my first um, big meeting with the company, we were at like 600 employees and this was the middle of September. And our last company-wide meeting in December, we were at 830. Wow. So it's it's growing 
so crazy. And so with that, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of headaches. So we're working on kind of figuring out those processes and all that, but that's kind of like a different story. But so I started, um, Aaron, I actually got the job. Aaron kind of, he knew that I didn't want to move to Wyoming. So Kafaru is moving to Wyoming uh, later this year. And I was on board, but didn't especially want to move to Wyoming. And he knew that. And my family is back here in Utah. I'd miss a bunch of stuff with, with my family. I've got a few nephews down, down South that barely see me. I barely, barely saw my parents just because I work so much. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it, it was a really big draw to go to Black Rifle. Just a, lo a lot of benefits um, that kind of outweighed staying with Kafaro. And I knew if I didn't take the opportunity, I would regret it. So I, I made the decision to, you know, to leave Kafaru and, and venture on to this new, this new job and kind of figure out where I fit here. And so I was going to be moved um, before I started in September, but it just, I was hunting in Colorado those mm -hmm. first couple of weeks of September. And I was, I was like a basket case cause I couldn't focus on hunting and, and being like present in the moment because I was like, I don't have a place to live in two right. weeks. Like right. I, I was just a basket case. And then I talked to my boss. I was like, Hey, can I, you know, put off moving a little bit so I can just figure some things out here. And they were perfectly cool with it. I, I work remote and I, I still technically work remote. And, um, then my, I, I came out for my first week out to Salt Lake for just the first week that I mm -hmm. was employed there. <clears throat> and then my third day, um, you know, I, I talked with Evan, I've got a, a good relationship with Evan. I was sitting there with my boss kind of training, going over a few things and Evan walks in, Hey, you want to go on a hunt? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, is that even a question? Mm -hmm. She's like, okay, I'll get you on the list. And so that was, you know, my third day at the company. And so the beginning of November, I, uh, got the opportunity to go up to the desert oh, up here and, God. and go, <laughs> go shoot a mule deer. <laughs> yeah. Mike lover recently went out there. Uh, and from everyone that's been out there, I haven't been out there yet. So black rifle, if you want to send me, I'll, I'll drink coffee along the way. Um, and I'm waiting for my opportunity to, to get up there. Uh, that is God's country. Yes. Like people tell me that that hunting location is like no other place in the continental United States. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about that in a second, but I want to talk about first the culture at black rifle, because I've been there and I know that there's that one warehouse that you guys have an archery range uh -huh. and you, I know you're wearing a CrossFit sweatshirt <laughs> and there's definitely a lifting culture there, like a workout culture. Yeah. What are some of the other things that people might not know behind the scenes? Like, Hey, we do these things. Like we, we've got this going on. Like maybe like little envy, uh, like give some like envy <laughs> points, you know, like what are some things that we would say, damn, that's really a cool company to work for. Yeah. I mean the biggest the biggest kind of selling points are there's a coffee shop in the office mm -hmm. where you can go get coffee all day long. Great coffee. There is an archery range. Like you said, you can shoot out to probably past a hundred yards and an archery shop inside that little yeah, gym it's a, area. It's a full service. A full gym. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a great gym. It's more of like a bro sesh gym. So it's, I, I kind of struggle with it in there a little bit, but it's still a great place. And I mean, I think that's all of that is just, is great. It's a one-stop shop. So it's like, you go get your work done, get your workout in, shoot your bow a few times, get some coffee, got all your bases covered, but it's just the culture there. The people there are, are so uplifting and everybody wants you to succeed. And everybody is like, they're like, what can I do to help you succeed? And it's, it's very, you know, mission focused. Mm -hmm. So everybody's working towards that, that that goal. It's not like, Oh, this is going to be better for me. So I need to do this. I need to do this. So it's, it's not people going against each other. Everybody's working together, which is very big. And now it's being reproduced in Texas with other stores there, right? Mm -hmm. Not production, but like <clears throat> direct competitors to some of the bigger chains. Like there's one in Texas. We have a couple here in Utah. What's the plan for those stores across the country? Have you heard anything? They want to open a lot of stores mm -hmm. <laughs> all over the country. So I think within the next couple of years, we'll be opening 
quite a few. I don't know specific numbers, but we're opening. I think we just opened like three new stores in Texas mm-hmm. within the past three weeks. So. I've, well, I'll tell you, I've got folks who want to open one where I'm from in Connecticut, <laughs> because in Connecticut, we've got uh Groton. There's a sub base there. There's mm-hmm. also the Coast Guard Academy there. Oh yeah. And I've got folks that are like, I want to open a Black Rifle Coffee here right yeah. now. How do I do it? How do I do it? So <laughs> I want to, if I can, I'll, I'll definitely pass them, pass them on your, to your way. Yeah. The first, I think a lot of these initial shops, like, yeah. or, and even probably all of the ones that are in, in the planning process now are Evan's friends. Mm-hmm. So they know Evan, they've had a relationship with Evan. So it, it may be a while before we get other franchises right. open, right. but it's, I mean, it's a possibility. Awesome. Uh, now let's talk about that list that you said that you were, you were put on for that hunt. Uh, you got there in September, they put you on the list and you already went on that hunt. So that list seems like it goes through pretty quickly and (laughs) it seems like you got a chance to do an epic hunt. So up in Deseret, uh, you went for mule deer. What was the scenario? Like, tell us about the shot. Okay. Well, I, so we were there for five days. We had five days to hunt. So I brought my bow and rifle because I wanted to go out maybe the first couple days with a bow, see if I could get something with my bow because I wasn't successful in Colorado. Um, and I, I was contemplating, I'm like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. And then there was another guy that brought out his bow too. So I was like, okay, I'll go with my bow the first couple days. So we, we hunted, we had like an evening hunt and both of us almost tagged out. (laughs) I, we, uh, we couldn't get close within like 74 yards. And I was just, I wasn't comfortable shooting at that distance on an animal, especially cause he knew we were there. They, they were alert. And, and so I was just, that was the closest we could get. We couldn't close that gap of mm-hmm. the last, you know, 20 yards. And, um, so the, the third kind of hunt we went on. So we went one evening, the next morning and then the next evening we went out again and I was like, I'm just taking a rifle. Like I'm, I'm just, you know, going into trophy hunter mode. I want to find the biggest animal, the most mature animal I can find. And then we saw a lot of really great deer that night, but I was like, no, they're, none of them are, you know, none of them are big enough. They were, they were all mature, but small threes, like Mm -hmm. three, three by four stuff like that. And nothing that that I knew, I knew the, the quality of animal that would be on that property. And I knew that wasn't the best. And so the following morning, it was the last day. So two and a half days of hunting and, um, everybody else had tagged out to this point. There were five hunters. I was the last oh, one. I don't want to be last. <laughs> I know there. I was like, Oh, I don't want to be the last one, but it actually worked out nice because everybody, um, like everybody was just like, searching for deer for me. We're all driving around the ranch mm-hmm. looking for, for deer. And one of the other guys, they had two different camps and we, uh, everybody in the other camp had tagged out. And so one of the guides was just driving around the ranch, just, just looking for stuff and came across the deer that I ended up shooting. So we we're on the opposite side of, of the property. Mm-hmm. And we get a call like, Hey, I've got a really nice deer in front of me. So we just book it. We're like hauling ass across this, the ranch. And I was like, Oh my gosh, we're going to die getting to this deer. <laughs> but <laughs> Like all the way across. And we come like, we come bombing up this mountain and, um, like six of us. Cause there were, there were two different trucks. We were kind of, uh, in a little party and, um, we all, we park like, I don't know, a hundred yards away from the other truck and I'll walk up to it trying to be as quiet as possible. And he's got the deer in the spotting scope and it's just bedded or, or feeding. And so we're like, okay, like this, this is the deer. This is the deer. And I'm like, all right, all right. Getting ready for the shot and, you know, trying to be quiet. They're like, do you see it? Do you see it? Like, I, I don't know which one it is. And then finally got like, got the sight dialed, got, got everything ready. Cause I'm not a gun person. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to practice more with guns, but I, I got him in the sights and pulled the trigger. And that was kind of that they were all, they were all definitely very surprised at how calm I was able to stay, but you know, being more of a, a bow hunter, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was, I was like thir- 330 yards away. So being a bow hunter, like like, yeah, I, I'm usually, you know, 
I killed my axis deer at seven yards. Yeah. So it's like, I'm used to being a lot closer to the game and, and I'm actually very, very good at staying cool and like calm in those scenarios. It's usually after the shot that I kind of fall apart, but being so far away from the animal, it was just like, okay. Yeah. It's, we did a, it. <laughs> it's a totally different experience, like seven yards. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, in the, the shooting industry, people will say like bad breath distance, like you can smell someone's breath at yeah. like three yards and in. Right. Um, but seven yards with a bow, 330 with a rifle. What, yeah. what rifle were you shooting? So I have a Weatherby 308. It's mm-hmm. a Camilla. So it's like the girl gun. Um, and then my my coworker, I'd only shot it to like 250 yards. So I was like, eh, 330 is kind of a stretch. But my coworker had um had a different gun and it had a, a suppressor on the end. Yes. He was like, he's Freedom. like, you, you don't need like ear protection. And I'm like, okay, yes, let's shoot that one. And he he was dialed out to to further distances. So I ended up using his gun and it was a seven mm psalm. Oh yeah. And with that suppressor, I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, if you guys aren't in a state that allows you to shoot suppressors, you don't understand the benefit of it. Uh, when you actually get a chance to use it. I mean, people will say, Oh, it's your, your sniping deer or your sniping <laughs> game. Like, and people say, what do, what do you need that for? But quite honestly, number one, it saves your hearing. Yeah. Uh, number two, it allows you to avoid that flinch reflex. Um, a lot of people will, will flinch or or jerk the trigger when they are anticipating the recoil and they inter- they're anticipating the the report. Um, so you're actually likely going to get a better shot on your game, um, <clears throat> which means that you're not going to injure it or likely injure it, which would mean that you'd have to trail it um, for longer than you'd want to. So that's freaking awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely jealous. I want to <laughs> go up there so bad. Um, and what, it, what was the, what was the deer that you shot? So he scored a uh, 172 and a quarter. Wow. Yeah. I got him back the other day. Oh my gosh. He's beautiful. Like pitchers do not do him justice. Like he, oh, he's just a beautiful animal. That's awesome. Yeah. Nicely done. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I always ask this question. We had Caitlin Lowe's on the, the podcast last year. Caitlin is a, a horseback uh, bow hunter and uh, I always ask this question when I talk to female hunters, what advice do you have for female hunters or females that want to get into hunting that might be intimidated? Because as you mentioned, it's a, it's a very male dominated industry, sport yeah. pastime. So do you have any like guiding tips for the ladies out there that might be listening? It's, I mean, it's very difficult to like, to get into hunting when you don't have like a, a, a husband or something like that someone like that to get you into it. And a lot of the, like the difficulty that I faced was finding people that, that were willing and able to take me hunting. Cause you know, they're like, Hey, I would take you hunting, but my wife was, she would not be okay with a cute young blonde girl going hunting with me. And I'm like, perfectly understandable. So finding, you know, find a friend, find, mm-hmm. find somebody that's willing to, to take you out and kind of show you the ropes and, and a trusted source also. Like you don't want to go out with just anybody because a lot of people skirt the rules and aren't always legal or, you know, ethical and, you know, do your research, try and find other women hunters. If you're able, you know, women talk the same language as far as a lot of figuring things out. And Mm -hmm. and so, and you know, gear is even different when it comes to a woman. So if you're able to find a woman that, that hunts or maybe a husband and wife, ask them if you can tag along or go to the shooting range or just, just something like do anything you can to, to get into hunting and just go Mm -hmm. and don't be scared to go by yourself. Cause that can be the most, and it is the most terrifying thing ever. I've, I go all out, uh, out a lot by myself and it's terrifying every single time, but it's so rewarding too. There's something to be said about like from, I mean, again, I'm from Connecticut <clears throat> and hunting out there, you get into the woods in the dark, mm-hmm. you're sitting. I mean, I did a lot of ground hunting in Connecticut. So like you're sitting at the base of a tree or behind a blind or whatever, it's pitch black. And there's a certain time in that morning, right before the sun's about to, to come up where the animals just start getting freaky, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're sounding, they're calling, they're making all sorts of movement and you'll hear things in the distance and you're like, what the hell was that? What the hell was that? And like, and I would hunt a lot by myself. 
mm-hmm. because the properties in Connecticut were smaller. Um, I knew I wouldn't have to travel very far to get to like an emergency point if I had to get out of there quickly. So I was just going by myself, but to get in there and then hear all these weird sounds, like it teaches you a lot about yourself. Yes. Uh, it's a very powerful experience. If you've never done it, you should. Um, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Like yeah. to, to go by yourself, to trust that, you know, you're going to learn something in the process. You're, you're absolutely spot on. And I think the other thing that you have to say is like, you're probably not going to be successful the first time you go out. So right. don't let it discourage you go out a second time, a third time. It might be 13 or 14 days where you're going into the woods or up into the mountains before you see something, Yeah, you know, but you're learning hopefully the whole time. Right. Um, and that, those learning, uh, like all of that learning really develops because the more you get out there, you're like, oh, I encountered this, you know, maybe you see certain things. And so you're like, oh, maybe the reason I'm seeing this is, is the reason I'm not seeing deer, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just learn, it's the best way to learn. And it's, it can be terrifying. And and speaking as a female, like every time I go into the woods, I'm, I'm terrified of running into even like another guy out there. Cause mm-hmm. you never know if you go to a trailhead, they might see you. you there could be some creeper out oh, there, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I always carry a sidearm when I'm by myself, but you know, aside from the four-legged animals that we have to worry about, women also have to be very aware of other men out Mm -hmm. there, especially if we're by ourselves. Yeah. And that's why I'm a big fan of saying, uh, there's either predator or prey. I, and I only make that distinction. I know some people will say sheep, sheep, dogs, and wolves, but it's like, don't give people three options give them two, right? Either you can present yourself as a predator animal or a prey animal. And if you're carrying a gun on you with a bow and you're dressing camouflage and you've (laughs) already stuck plenty of animals with your bow. <laughs> I don't think you are a prey animal. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah. A lot of, I mean, I'm, I don't look like a, I would be, you know, a damsel in distress. I don't look like somebody that would be overtaken easily. And I think that that and helps. That, <laughs> and that vibe is something that people will, you, you can feel that vibe. You can sense that vibe when you meet someone. Are they a don't fuck with me person yeah. or are they a, Hey, take advantage of me person, yes. you know? Um, Now we're running short on time here, but I almost always finish podcasts with a few questions about some of our pillars of preparedness. Mm -hmm. So I know you're wearing the black rifle coffee fanny pack, uh, bringing the fanny pack back. It's, it's a good look. Um, what are some of the things that you never leave your home without like everyday carry items? Well, my keys, my wallet, my phone and chapstick. (laughs) Okay. What vehicle are you driving mobility wise? I drive a forerunner. What kind? Like what, like what's, what's the story behind it? Um, it's a horror. <laughs> I know, but what year, what? Oh, what? so it's a 08. Um, it's got a V8, mm-hmm. um, a fun little thing. It's, it's got like a leveling kit on it. So I get a little bit more clearance. Yeah. The, <clears throat> I've got a 2015 forerunner. That's a V6. I wish it had the eight in it. Yes. Um, because that's one thing I'll say about the forerunner is that it's not the quickest car in the world, uh, Mine but, is. but yours <laughs> is. Um, so yeah, that's it's kind of dangerous. It, it, it <laughs> Some is, days. it is, but it's also one of the most factory, uh, equipped trail capable vehicles out there. Like mm-hmm. right from the factory, it's going to be able to do a lot. Um, you don't have to do much to them, but just like the Jeep platform, there's so many accessories for it. Yeah. So if money were no budget, what would you do to that thing? Oh my gosh. Everything. All the, I, I'd probably get, get a lift just so I have more clearance going off into the mountains and, you know, going off road. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd get a, a big bumper put on it so I didn't have to worry about hitting stuff. Um, better tires, you know, like big tires, big rims. Um, every, all of the, and all, I know you guys do a lot of the mobility stuff, I would basically come to you guys be like, Hey, yes, what do should. I need? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and kind of go from there because, you know, one thing I've learned is when you have access to experts, go to ask those es- mm-hmm. experts. Don't, you know, don't, don't be like, Oh, I don't want to bug them. It's, you know, you can approach it in a, in a good way and, and use your resources. 
Well, I'll tell you, we've got a lot of things coming up that you should definitely join us on. Uh, you mentioned carrying the pistol into the woods. We've got all the women's self-defense classes here. Uh, we've got the mobility experience. I mean, you guys know over at Black Rifle, you guys are welcome to anything that we do. So, yeah. you know, feel free to bug me, bug Austin, bug Amber, bug Mike, bug everyone. And just be like, hey, I want to come to this. I want to come to this. You'll <laughs> never get, you'll never hear us say no. Um, but where can people find you and what can people expect from you in say like the next year or so? Um, Instagram is probably the best place to find me. Uh, Dana underscore Monroe, um, D-A-Y-N-A, not any other way. Um, this year I'll hopefully be going back to Hawaii, kill another axis deer or two or three, as many as I can. (laughs) It's unlimited out there. So you can kill as many animals as you want. And then I have no idea what's in store this fall. I may try and uh, hunt deer here on the the Wasatch Front. Mm-hmm. Um, probably go out to Nebraska for another whitetail hunt. I was invited to Scotland to go hunting. Oh my god! So kind of depending on on travel restrictions, all of that. I really want to do that. That would be incredible. So that's that's kind of what's in store. Hopefully for this year. That's awesome. Well, hey. Guys, uh, please, please check out our good friends over at Black Rifle. Uh, if you ever are in the Salt Lake City area, swing by their headquarters. I, I mean, you'll be able to get amazing coffee brewed right there. Still to this day, I think one of the strongest cups of coffee I've ever had. <laughs> and um, the best. It is really, really good. <laughs> really good stuff. Um, please follow Dana. Uh, on Instagram. Check out our friends over at Kafaru. Please come and see us over here in Heber City, Utah at Fieldcraft. Guys, we've got a lot of stuff going on. Right now, this podcast kind of represents the synergy of two companies that are constantly changing. Black Rifle, as you heard from Dana, is is a different company every single week. Same thing with Fieldcraft. Uh, we got a lot of cool stuff coming up this year. So any parting words? I'm going to give you the final word and be like, later. So sign us <laughs> off. Drink some Black Rifle coffee. It's the best. There you have it, guys. All right. (laughs) We'll see you guys soon.